Well, about 100 years after Christ, a messianic event of sorts took place in Israel. The second temple had been destroyed for over 60 years, and the Jewish people were still being oppressed by Rome. Emperor Hadrian was forcing them to Hellenize, and he was forbidding them from following their religious customs, in particular uh, of great angst to the Jewish people. He was forbidding them from practicing the rite of circumcision. And he was slowly but surely turning Jerusalem into a pagan city. Now, this oppression soon led to another revolt against Rome, one of many. And this time, it was led by a man named Simon ben Kosova, also known as Bar Kochva, or the son of the star. Now, Bar Kochva was able to defeat the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, and for about two to three years, a small but independent Jewish state was established. And during those years, the great Rabbi Akiva ben Yosef erroneously interpreted scripture and proclaimed Bar Kochva as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the one who would restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, a lot of Jews fell in line with this, and they believed that Bar Kokhba, as the Messiah, had indeed ushered in the beginning of God's new world, that a new kingdom era had started. And so, with great enthusiasm, the followers of Bar Kokhba, they, they minted coins with the words, year one, emblazoned upon them signifying that this indeed was the beginning of a new era, a new age. And the next year, the coins were minted again, this time with year two. And on one side of the coin, there was a picture of the temple. Now remember, the temple had been destroyed. It was no longer standing. But in this new kingdom, the temple was the ultimate goal. In other words, they were saying, yes, the new age has begun, this is year one of the reign of this Messiah King, but we now have work to do. We have a mission in light of this new reign to rebuild the temple and to restore the dwelling place of God's presence among his people. And they were living in what N.T. Wright and other theologians have come to call a now but not yet situation. They were living practically in this overlap of ages where they believed something to already be true. As far as they were concerned, something had truly been initiated but was not yet in its final or its ultimate form, if you will. And so what this launching of their new reality did is it actually provided them with an agenda for what they had to do to complete the job. Now, <clears throat> history tells us that the Bar Kokhba revolt uh, ended in catastrophic ruin and great violence. Uh, to borrow from the words of <clears throat> Gamaliel in Acts 5, Bar Kokhba's ways, not being of God, came to nothing. 
and he was eventually relegated to the role of a false messiah, the kind that Christ had warned against so many years ago in Matthew 24, a false Christ. But it's the, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the perspective of these Jews on the now but not yet nature of their Messiah's kingdom that I hope will be helpful to us this morning as we consider a different messianic event that took place about 100 years before Bar Kokhba and that unlike his revolt would prove to be of world-changing consequence. You see, Jesus also had two to three years of public ministry. And it's clear that he believed and his followers believed that something really was happening during that period. In Matthew chapter 3, we're introduced to this fascinating character of uh, John the Baptist. And as he's wandering through the wilderness of Judea, the message that he's proclaiming is, is not one of complacency. It's not one of, of mildly feeling bad for some things we've done or changing our mind about some moral stance. His message is one of radical conversion. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Run in the opposite direction from it because something urgent, something reality-changing is happening. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. If we were to <clears throat> interpret that more literally, it's the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's begun. Now, a chapter later in Matthew 4, this message is continued. Um, the prophet Isaiah is quoted from Isaiah chapter 9, saying, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. A light has come. And that light was Jesus. And at the dawning of his ministry, he preached the same message that John preached. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark, <clears throat> in Mark 1.15, same message. Repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I might just note here briefly that the term kingdom of God is used primarily in Mark and Luke. Well, Matthew probably uh, for the sake of his predominantly Jewish audience who would have been uh, sensitive to direct references to God, Matthew refers to this kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. But it does seem, though, that those two terms are used and can be thought of synonymously. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven uh, are one and the same. But Jesus says this kingdom is at hand. And he goes on in Mark 1.15 to say, the time is fulfilled. This is it. So much that the Old Testament has looked forward to is now. God's reign upon the earth, as it was foretold by the prophets, is now. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, repeated in Luke 9, 27, again in Matthew 16, 28, Jesus says to his listeners, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, until they see the kingdom of God come with power. 
Something is bursting forth into the world, and you are going to see it. Even if at first it doesn't look like what you might be expecting. In Luke 17, 21, Jesus proclaims again that the kingdom of God is in the midst of his listeners, as though it was present right then, right there in his person and ministry. When he's casting out demons in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus tells his critics that the kingdom of heaven has come upon them, that a new age is beginning, even though they may fail to recognize it. We even have the somewhat cryptic words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twelve, where he speaks of the kingdom of heaven suffering violence. That could be construed as Jesus insisting that through his ministry, the kingdom was forcing its way into the world against all opposition. But what, I, what I'm trying to express, what I hope we're seeing, is that Jesus clearly recognized his ministry as the, uh, the fulfillment and the beginning of a long-awaited breaking forth of the kingdom of God into this world. A claim that was backed up uh, by his evidence of miracles, by the words of authority that he used, and most of all, through his resurrection, as we'll talk about in just a little bit. But if we keep reading the words of Jesus and his apostles, we pick up on a slightly different message as well. When we find even as the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there also seems to be an eschatological aspect to the same kingdom. Things Jesus said that had a, a future tense to them. He said that the kingdom of God had come in his person and ministry, but he also spoke of a day and a kingdom that were still to come. A day of the Lord in which there would be a final judgment, a final restoration, and somehow a final and universal fulfillment of the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, when Jesus is teaching his disciples on the nature of prayer, he gives them an example of how to pray, and it contains what looks like an eschatological invitation in verse 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, one possible interpretation of this prayer is that there's an expectation being expressed in it, an expectant hope, if you will, for the final establishment of God's rule over creation, a petition for the hastening of the kingdom of God, the same kingdom that we read of in Revelation eleven fifteen, that at the end of days will come and replace utterly and completely the kingdom of the world. So we kind of have to juggle what we're reading. Uh, the present nature of the kingdom Jesus spoke of, but also somehow these future aspects of it. And it appears that we have to hold two things true at once, two scriptural realities that have to be held in tension with each other. First, that the kingdom of God is in many ways here now, uh, that it did indeed arrive in the coming of Christ, and that it was inaugurated, it was launched, if you will, in his death and resurrection. But we also recognize, obviously, 
that all is not well with the world. The current state of the world still seems very much broken. And so we're forced to grapple with this reality that the fullness and the consummation of the kingdom of God is also, in a sense, still to come. And this puts us, God's people, in a place of intersection and balance, an overlap of ages, the old age and the new, where the kingdom of heaven truly is now and not yet. And it's my hope that next week, this week and next week, we can grow in our appreciation of this truth, of this balance, and its uh, many implications. But uh, for the rest of today, I'd like to spend the rest of our time uh, together just reflecting on how the death and resurrection of Christ brought about the inauguration of this kingdom, the launching of this kingdom. But before we do that, let's make sure we're all on a similar page at least, and let's ask the question, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? Based on the testimony of Scripture, we could most simply say that the kingdom of God is the reign and realm of God. Not so much to be thought about in, in geographical terms, as though this kingdom is somehow confined to, to physical parameters, but it's a kingdom in the sense of ruling, in a sense of kingship. And it's a kingdom that seems to be built upon and even defined by the person and kingship of Jesus Christ. According to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 and Revelation 19, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. According to Paul in Ephesians 1, excuse me, Christ is proclaimed as above all rule and all authority and power. In Daniel's vision in chapter 7, one that Christ, to, uh, Christ refers to in his own titles, the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that is above all peoples, nations, and languages, and they will serve him. The kingdom of God, Scripture tells us, is the kingship of God. And in the coming of Christ some 2,000 years ago, the king himself arrived. And he had a lot to teach his listeners about the nature of the kingdom. In Matthew 13, 31 to 32, for example, Jesus compares the kingdom of God, using hyperbolic language, to the, the tiniest mustard seed, which, he says, when it's sown in the ground is the smallest seed, but when it's sown grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In Matthew 13, 33, the next verse, Jesus describes the same kingdom as leaven hidden in flour until the time that the entirety of the bread was leavened, something small, spreading, permeating through everything. In 1344, the kingdom is referred to uh, as a hidden treasure of endless worth. And in 1345, it's illustrated as something that the man uh, through the man who sells everything to purchase the pearl of great price. Now, there are a few um, different possible interpretations of these parables, but one 
particularly compelling interpretation, I believe, certainly is this, that the kingdom of God will rise from seeming insignificance to a someday all-encompassing reality of the utmost significance and worth. And that is what happened, it's what's happening now, and it's what will happen. God's sovereign reign and kingdom, and most specifically, his ruling presence, broke forth into the world through Christ, who, Philippians 2 tells us, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born as a man. And it was his ministry, it was his work that ushered in the kingdom, his kingdom, his kingship. And here's the kicker for you and I. This kingdom involves us. Those of us who are in Christ are part of this kingdom now. This is what the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.13 tells us. He says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us where? To the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God. And if we understand the gospel, we know that it was only through Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, through his shed blood, and that through his conquering of death, that Paul's words could be true. That the believer could be transferred from darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 8, made joint heirs with Christ. Without his resurrection, Christ's kingship would have ended just as ingloriously as Bar Kokhba's did. The cross would have just been a defeat, and the forces of this world would still be in power. But with his resurrection, the powers of this old age have been brought low, and a new age has been ushered in. This is the message of the gospel of God that Christ in his death and resurrection broke the enslaving powers of sin and death. And according to Paul in Galatians 1.4, delivered all those who believe in Christ from the present evil age. The resurrection was not just an historical event. It was also, in a sense, an eschatological one, an event that affirms that the new age really has been launched. It was the event which enables believers, you and I, to live in the knowledge that death is a crowning feature of the present age has been overcome. As we wrap up this morning, uh, let's uh, open our Bibles together. If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And I'm going to read from the ESV, and you're welcome to read along <coughs> with me. One more time, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 
verses 20 to 28. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now this is a bit of a mouthful, but let's not get lost in it. The central truth of Christ's resurrection is this. We now know that the new era of God's long-awaited plan has opened up. The Jewish people in Paul's day, in Bar Kochva's days, they talked about these separate ages, a present age and the age to come. And they believed that in the age to come, everything would be put right. The dead would be raised. But in this passage, Paul seems to be telling his listeners that as hard as it might be to understand, to comprehend, to process, the age to come, when everything will be put right, that age has been launched. It's been inaugurated with the resurrection of Christ the King. And now the present age and the age to come are overlapping each other for a time. And that time is where Paul's original audience lived, and it's where you and I live today, in the now and the not yet. And as we'll discuss uh, in greater detail next week, it's very important for us to get the balance between those two rights. Sometimes we want a bit too much now, and we forget that it's still a matter of labor and struggle and pain. We forget that still much prayer and faithfulness and steadfastness is required of us, even with the benefits of the kingdom now. Other times we get so wrapped up, so concerned about the continuing darkness of the world, we become so blinded by the temporal that maybe we're tempted to think that Jesus will only really be reigning when he comes again in glory at the end of all things. And that right now he's just not operating with any real power or authority. But that is wrong. Paul is clear that Christ reigns now. The kingdom of God isn't something that will only start when Christ returns. No, it's been launched through Jesus. 
from his resurrection and his ascension, Christ is already enthroned as the Lord of the world. And he is ruling over the hearts of those who have received his message. And he will go on reigning, Paul says, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. For his kingdom is without end. And that's where we live at the moment. And it's where we will continue to live until Christ returns and his people are raised to new life. Then, at last, as both Isaiah and Habakkuk prophesied, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And that will be a time of the great fulfillment and the universal finality of the kingdom of God, when God will be all in all. Next week, uh, as we pick this study back up, we're going to look a little bit at the benefits and the blessings and the promises that we enjoy as citizens of the kingdom now, including, most importantly, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll talk more about what characterizes the rule of Christ in the kingdom now and how we might reconcile that with our current experiences and expectations. Uh, we're also going to reflect a little bit on the nature of increasing opposition, incrementally increasing opposition to the culmination of God's good purposes and um, how we might respond to that increasing resistance. And we'll reflect just a little bit more about on the balance that should be struck in our lives as we're living in the now and the not yet. Hopefully that will prove to be uh, of some encouragement to us. I'm going to invite the music team to come back up. And can we all stand together and let's sing with thankful hearts the song again uh, by his blood.